Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. They enter with conviction, always. They leave broken, always. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 212, the anti-penultimate of season two, Matt, through the Valley of Shadows, comes your way now via raw Klingon time crystal. And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode. Pete, some weeks our news cup runneth over and there's all these things to talk about. This week, who's ready for ornaments? Hallmark announced plans for a motion picture enterprise. Burnham and Saru talking with real voices. A Tribble and a $100 tabletop transporter pad with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. What a time to be alive. I look forward to seeing them at New York Comic Con in the plastic. And uh, I look forward to people who complain about having to pay for the gift that is Star Trek Discovery, but will plunk down $100 for an ornament. And now for our mission briefing. Burnham watches one mother's mission log telling her she'll return to her and her father after the time storm passes before receiving an incoming hollow transmission from another. Indeed, interrupted by Amanda, who calls to share her own awareness and frustration of the situation. Burnham recaps that Dr. Burnham, Dr. Mom, was trying to stop control and she has her own regrets. Amanda says that things were backwards. Burnham will find her mother again. With that, ding-dong, Spock is there. A moment of brevity in his eyes as he sees his mother. Fantastic acting moment where Ethan Peck has to both act and not act because of the nature of Spock. It's time for Mom to hang up, though. A new signal has appeared. Pete, it's like you called it. We're still chasing signals. This one over Boreth, a Klingon world not connected to Mom. And wait a minute, Pete. Boreth sounds awful familiar. It does. With Dr. Burnham's time crystal destroyed, she couldn't have created the signal. And Saru points out she told them she had no knowledge of them. Uh, So what we have here, Matt, Spock suggests the signals were created by another time-traveling entity. Tyler thinks this is a trap, given the location here. And Burnham calls the speculation unproductive and asserts waiting is a waste of time with Leland as the AI control. They should uh, join agent Georgiou in the search for him. And Seru points out that since the sphere data cannot be removed from discovery uh, by pursuing him, they would be putting it within Leland's reach. Tyler explains Boris importance with its monastery to Kales, but uh, he reacts, which Burnham notes, to stick a pin in for later. But he'll reach out to Chancellor Laurel to arrange passage as we go to the title card. The credits show all the regulars, including Wilson Cruz and Shazad Latif. By the way, Pete, Wilson Cruz said on Twitter as to last week's lack of a credit that it was a mistake and it was going to be rectified ASAP. Oh, I checked. He still is not credited for last week's episode, so I guess they're, they're working on that, but he's he's credited in this one. The episode is written by Bojan Kim and Erica Lippold and directed by Doug Arniokoski. Discovery jumps in over Boreth and Burnham goes to see Tyler in his quarters. She saw him react in the ready room and wants to know what he's not telling them. He tells her it is the home to his son, technically Vulcan Laurel's son. He recaps what led to him being placed in the care of the monks to be raised as a son of none like he was. Indeed, Pete, both Tyler and Burnham are are struggling with secrets. With that, his pad beeps. It's like a secret mini pad, iPhone-sized pad. It's an amazing future. Uh, a Section 31 ship has not checked in. 
He wonders if someone would chase after it, but then he gets paged. The D7 with Chancellor Laurel has arrived in what I assumed is going to be a big, awesome reveal of the D7, but ultimately the show kind of underplays it. That's okay. Um, it is a pretty yet harsh-looking ship. Laurel on the Discovery recaps that Bereth uh, has uh, limited contact with the outside world, and she says, also, spoiler alert, that the monastery... Uh, covers a harvest of time crystals, a weapon like none other. Yes, this rare mineral that they protect. Tyler wants to go down, but Laurel doesn't want to discuss in front of an outsider in Pike. She says it would endanger a life, the life of their son. Uh, both Tyler and their son's existence must be kept secret or open up the Empire to sedition. As they argue in Klingon, Pike volunteers to go. But Laurel explains Boreth is not for the faint of heart. Even she holds no sway with the monks. No Klingon, let alone a human, has ever taken a time crystal from the monastery without great sacrifice. Meanwhile, Burnham wants to check out that uh, missing 31 ship that checked in. Turns out 10 minutes late. Uh, that is suspicion enough for acting Captain Saru, who greenlights the mission, saying that he's different since Fahari. And uh, is that what the red light wanted? Difficult to know. On Boreth, it's snowing. Uh, on Pike, who's got that fantastic, smart Starfleet, the jacket, the snowsuit. Um, he enters from the snow, and uh, we see Klingons are aware of him, and there's a bejeweled one who indeed knows why he's there, Pete. Yes, the timekeepers, as they're known, Matt, guardians, not rulers, of the book, the time crystals, of course. Um, they are not to trade, and they're not allowed to leave the sacred walls. The head timekeeper tells Pike, um, he's not strong enough, but all Pike wants is a chance to prove his strength. And, uh, the lead timekeeper notes that the people that come there always come with conviction, but leave broken. Uh, Pike maintains he's not leaving without a time crystal and time will tell. On Discovery's shuttle deck, Burnham is prepping to leave alone, but Spock is joining her, you know, in case she needs saving. Nice little side mission here, and they're off. We get an act break, then a fantastic shot of the Discovery swirling around the saucer section and heading into a happy mess hall as uh, many of the bridge crew are having a meal. Stamets is there, and Reno too. Uh, Stamets is good at his job, but he can't stop the AI or get Dr. Culber back. Reno is eager to work with him on the new Time Crystal mission. There's some delightful wordplay with Linus, and uh, Stamets looks sadly at the entering Culber. Time for him to go research crystals. Just as Stamets sees Dr. Culber enter the mess hall and gets jealous when he sees him talking to an alien with an enormous head, Reno thought Stamets had moved on as it's been weeks since Culver moved out of their quarters. He tells her to eat her protein as he goes to bury his head in time crystal research. Meanwhile, it, if Pete, we can use such a, a time-limited word, meanwhile on Boreth, Tanavik is the monk who was once without a name. Turns out he's a baby all grown up uh, because here past, present, and future are all equal. That's right, Pete. He is the wee baron dropped off, oh, five, eight episodes ago. The purpose of all who are there is to protect the crystals. What is Pike's purpose? With that, Pete, take us back to the shuttle. Burnham and Spock are two minutes out. They discuss the signals. Burnham thinks they're meaningless because of her rage, the enemy of logic. But Spock who was once angry as well, says that she is the common denominator. They arrive to find the entire crew has been ejected into space from the undamaged Section 31 ship. There's one life sign they beam to the shuttle. Lieutenant Kamran Gant, former tactical officer aboard the Shenzhou. 
He comes to, and they explain their mission. He was trying to purge a suspicious subroutine from the ship when the systems locked them out and began to purge them. He blames himself, Matt, but he miraculously was the only one who got into an EV suit before passing out. This is a really great use of casting here because I think had it not been that guy from the first couple of minutes of the first episode where there's that moment of realization in part because you mean the show that this back. toronto based actor they brought in for a couple days <laughs> yes but i mean the fact that he is familiar from that first episode to me it completely belied what was about to come and i mean that as a compliment i did not suspect oh man he's the sleeper agent right um you know, I'm not saying that it's out of the blue that it happens, but it's just enough to be like, hey, it's that guy. Is Young Koozie still around? How about Robot Head? <laughs> and it's just enough to 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 push the story forward without us saying, you know, no, there are enemies everywhere and they look like us. And it's the it's the uh, the, the evil control, et cetera. Yeah, it, it's soft pedals that later reveal which winds up being the most effective approach. Of course, Burnham wants to go over to the vessel for answers as to why it would kill its crew and now enter a stasis mode. Uh, Gant doesn't want to go over, but they convince him he can help prevent more death. In Tyler's quarters, Laurel says that her ship is scanning to protect her son it will, and it will attack if needed. She didn't plan on seeing Tyler ever again, but here the signals have brought them together. Laurel has accepted Tyler's love for Burnham, and Laurel has accepted that the Vogue she loved is gone. Tyler and Burnham will both protect their son, their nameless son, on the planet Tanavik, you know, Pete, who now has a name, takes Pike to the uh, pillar of the past and the pillar of the present. It reads, when the future becomes the past, the present will be unlocked. Oh man, Pete, is this our Legend of Zelda reference in the episode? You read my mind there. Um, Maybe I read it in the future. <laughs> or we had a discussion about it. Uh, in the past. Oh, man, Pete, it's happening. Yeah, Bowie had tweeted, uh, who, who's a big gamer, uh, Bowie Young Kim, uh, like myself, big a big Nintendo gamer on top of that, which, you know, as if you could, uh, you know, get me in my sweet spot anymore, that there's a uh, hidden legend of zelda reference um not quite sure if we're talking about the episode although it deals with the uh the past you know links to the past and all matt did, did you bring your ocarina of, of time with you to the podcast do, 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 do. <laughs> so she'll just have to get back to us whether it is indeed in this episode or down the road that they're writing but moving on matt as Pike goes to touch a crystal, he flashes forward to a Starfleet engineering room erupting in explosions due to a radiation leak during a training exercise. He orders the evacuation of the cadets and then sacrifices himself to save them before emerging at the barrier with the damage visible to his face. Then, unharmed in a darkened hallway, a whirring, out-of-focus form approaches. Beep, beep. It's him in the iconic wheelchair, and his face contorts horribly. He recoils in the present, and Tanavik tells him he may still choose to walk away from that future, but if he takes the crystal, his fate will be sealed. Of course, Christopher Pike reaffirms what he believes as a Starfleet captain and refuses to abandon his principles because of the future he's glimpsed. Tanavik breaks off the time crystal and honors him. Pete, this scene hammers home, I think, what can upset inflexible fans and what can delight open-minded fans. There's plenty of chatter online about how the uh, it is impossible that an old J-class starship would have a bridge, or pardon me, have an engineering section that looks identical to Discovery, and fine, are they reusing a set? Sure. I could ultimately care less what it looks like, 
where this where this radiation breach occurred the fact that we get this horrible vision of the future for pike and the fact that he now is walking away not just with a sort of vague realization that i suppose we all have that one day our individual life will end but he knows what his end point will be and he can probably probably make some sort of inferences regarding how well he remembers it like he's on a j-class starship or he's with cadets or things like that and the future steps he will take in life are now the steps of a condemned man it's it it informs the character all the better in a wonderful way and if you're spending time complaining that they didn't build a new set you're missing the feeling and the character points and things that make us all human it's a tremendous sequence and full credit to uh, Bo Yun Kim and Erica Lippold here for scripting it in such a wonderful way. Um, I knew the moment we had Pike cast in this season, we were going to have to see how he winds up in the chair. And I know you had doubted it a little bit and playing around with the time conceit of this season makes it the perfect opportunity to drop it in. And now we know it occurs in the future. Now we know he's seen it. He goes into it aware of it, which makes the sacrifice and the ultimate salvation that he receives in um, the menagerie later on all the more redeeming. And for anybody who's concerned that this has now rewritten the precious character of Captain Christopher Pike, let's not forget he appeared in one episode three times you know it was the original pilot that got <laughs> that got reused into two other episodes this is far different than like you know oh man they've made fundamental changes to Sarek who appeared in so many episodes and two or three movies and next generation like th this is a minor character who's had a major impact on star trek not the other way around but Bottom line, in this scene, Pete, he, of course, wants the crystal. He's prepared to lock in that future. Tanavik says, take the crystal. Your fate is sealed. Uh, change your fate if you leave the crystal. He wants the crystal. He wants to live up to that captainly ideal, and that's what ends the act. Burnham, Spock, and Gant beam over to the Section 31 ship, which wakes and warps away. In Discovery's med bay, Reno needs urgent medical attention on a hangnail. Culber tends to her and learns the hangnail is one of two things currently impeding her work. The other is Stamets. Culber finds a wedding ring and learns Reno was married to a Soyuzin who unfortunately died in the Klingon War. She advises him not to screw up the second chance he has with Stamets. On the 31 ship, they're headed just outside Federation space. Where could it be? The AI can't be fought, but maybe it can be drawn into a dummy startup system. It'll be like fresh meat for a lion. And Pete, this another example of what the show does so well, where they tend to follow techity tech stuff. And I think that, you know, dummy startup system, probably we can all get that from context but to say it's fresh meat for the lion who will be drawn into the cage and someone will hold the door open and clang it shut behind them makes it totally clear that everyone is understanding what's what uh spock is going to be the one who steps away to do bleeps and bloops with the computer core uh takes him to the ready room uh, in part because pete the section 31 ship aside from that medical room where we saw the semi-comatose Spock several episodes ago the section 31 ships set consists of the bridge and the adjoining ready room and boy aren't they lucky that they put a transporter <laughs> pad right in the middle of it because then you don't need to build another set since this is a heavy heavy reuse not reuse it's a heavy redress reconstruction of the Senjo bridge so it's all recycling conscious yeah, uh, they dropped the they dropped the floor down from season one and and built the section 31 ship Burnham and Gant catch up. Detmer told her that he had survived the war, and he tells a story about how Section 31's threat assessment program was attempting to prevent the Klingon war from ever even starting. And of course, he joined up. 
as Burnham begins to put two and two together and grab her phaser, Spock identifies control is in one area outside the ship's systems, a carbon-based life form on the bridge. But he's unable to contact Burnham. And Gant Troll tells Burnham, once it absorbs the sphere data, it will become the purest form of life in all existence. Indeed, Pete, he can see every possible future. It all ends the same way. I wonder, Pete, was it like over 14 million futures? Was Doctor Strange there? I don't know. How many do we we win in? And there's a season three. Oh, wait, all of them. (laughs) Um, Burnham intuits that Control wanted Burnham, and that's why Spock was given the chance to walk away. Uh, Ultimately, Spock gets to Burnham, and a phaser fight erupts. She's trying to start a manual reboot, then gets body slammed by Gant, who's ready to eject the nanites into her eye, into her eye, which was a nice moment for me to go, oh, regardless of the you know reasonability or not of there being the pointy stick in the uh, the uh, ocular scanner that originally uh, infected um, Leland, that's now the purpose. It's not just shoot a guy in the eye; it's it's to inject those nanites. Spock arrives to save the day, but the Vulcan nerve pinch can't work on anybody. Pete, who's got no nerves? Yeah, it was a a good way to explain why he's not able to combat him here. Throws Spock across the room. Uh, Burnham blows holes in Gantz. Uh, so then we get the really great effect of all of the nanobots winding their way across the floor. Spock magnetizes the floor just in time here, and they're able to eliminate the threat. Afterward, he explains to Burnham that Control had blocked his tricorder from recognizing Control, and that she now knows the ultimate goal was to turn her. couple of little bits here. I love the line where, Spock says that he had to calculate how to magnetize the floor on his head. He apologizes for being so slow. (laughs) That kind of wry sense of humor that Ethan Peck really is uh, nailing. Also, in an interesting turn that I don't know if it's meant to be stick a pin in it for later or not, Burnham says there's no need to go to wherever it was that the ship was headed, uh, since, as you said, Pete, the mission was to get Burnham and turn her. So, well, I guess that's, that's fodder for a theories discussion later but the question is can the signals help after all what do you think pete maybe there is something to them as their shuttle returns to discovery a preoccupied pike tells tyler and laurel he got the time crystal and it will help with the last three signals stamets and reno are working on it laurel asks what the monks wanted in return but he explains what he experienced is for him alone which he promised their son, Tanavik, a good name. He returns the insignia of the torchbearer Tyler gave their child before he sent him to Boreth. It helped him with his journey, and he no longer needs it. He was meant to be on Boreth, and Pike was meant to be guided by him. They all have a part to play. Burnham then is speaking to the bridge crew. Control can co-opt people and ships. Uh, There was that attempt to take her to a specific place outside the Federation. Then suddenly they're reading Section 31 ships coming for them. About 30 are, Pete. Are there a total of 31 ships in Section 31? If so, that's (laughs) oddly obsessive. Um, It's time to spore jump away, though, right? However, Burnham says they have no alternatives and not enough knowledge to use the time crystal at this point. They have nowhere to run, and only one option, destroy the ship. Pike then quickly sends a message to number one, prepare rendezvous, prepare for a full complement of transfer. Discovery is to be destroyed. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis that is assuming that our sensors are working and not somehow blocked by control. Let's start with Tanavik, the timekeeper, who who only halfway through the episode started to seem slightly familiar. 
Yes, it's the first albino Klingon that Kenneth Mitchell, uh, who's rapidly becoming the one-man Klingon empire, um, you know, just wonderful to get him back. We had him earlier in the season as Laurel's uncle. He, of course, uh, Cole from season one. He can play all the Klingons, Matt. They need to do some sort of... uh... You know, like Willy Wonka with uh, where, where Deep Deep Roy plays all the um, the Oompa Loompas. They need to do that where it's just nonstop uh, with Ken Mitchell. But not Laurel. He can't play Laurel. That is true. That is true. Um, genuinely, it was halfway through the character's appearance in the episode where I started to pick up on some of the gravelly nature of of the voice that is Kenneth Mitchell. I'm sure he made a conscious decision to play the character differently, to sound different. Uh, whereas, you know, Cole and Cole Shaw, obviously you would play those two more similarly since they were related. And it's just a wonderful bit of trivia and it's a great character and it's a great yeah. use of returning back to this character, Pete, that we just barely met as a, as a wee baby back at the beginning of the season. There's such a tradition uh, to the actors who have played beloved Klingon roles you think back to the next generation and Galron and then Deep Space Nine and Martok and everything like that and Kenneth Mitchell has already etched his name in that Mount Rushmore of prosthetic performers 20 years from now will Kenneth Mitchell be doing conventions with the special take a picture with Kenneth Mitchell in Cole slash Cole Shaw slash Tanavik makeup the, the future is clouded, Matt. I don't think he took that time crystal, so that that fate's not sealed in uh, latex just yet. <laughs> well, let's talk about the threat of, as you say, Gant Troll, the uh, control-infused <laughs> creature formerly known as Gant. Uh, again, great use of the actor of the familiar character to to undo what I think otherwise would have been. No, don't go in the haunted house spock and burnham it's a bad place let's realize too what this episode does it gives us back a bit character from burnham's past then reveals it to have been uh, a lie and that character thought saved now died with all those other people facelessly that we didn't know so we lose him all over again it's it's just narratively it is such a great use there and uh i guess pete now we can start the countdown who else from the senjo bridge crew will show up at some point out of the blue to to heal our hearts and break them all again the daft punk crewman from the shenjo would be too obvious for control to inhabit so hopefully um the entire season three storyline will be set around her well, Pete, just as Gant fell victim to the evil computer system, we have our own computer system that we battle with sometimes. That's where we keep all our podcast storage and bandwidth and whatnot. But helping fight that evil, that good, is the people who support us on patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, making sure that ultimately we are the masters of the bleeps and the bloops, not evil control. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content and all it takes is a dollar a month to get you in the door uh recently made our early shazam thoughts available for you I haven't seen the movie uh, a couple weeks before it's come out so all sorts of goodies like that and we're just tickled pink anybody would even think to contribute and help us pay these costs Pete, let's open up the long-range sensors. First question for me, clearly the Enterprise and the Cavalry on the way here, the return of number one, etc. How much of the Enterprise are we going to get? And I ask that because would too much Enterprise take our attention away from, you know, Discovery on Star Trek Discovery? And the, the countdown to blowing it up. Well, since you don't look at the previews for next week's episode, Matt, you may or may not have missed something. Well, 
That's awfully vague. True, I did not watch the preview, as I remain hashtag spoiler free. Um, I certainly, I'm, I'm so excited that we kind of can understand the shape of this season in terms of how things kicked off and that little snippet of the Enterprise there. And then now we're returning to that uh, as opposed to the first season that had, I suppose, a similar shape, but was a bit more with the first half, second half uh shape to it and here it kind of being one season with little parts in it i like that we're circling back you have to trust this writer's room and we knew that enterprise could not overpower this season it's star trek discovery star trek enterprise different show so of course the enterprise is after they've solved all their technical problems and removed screens that make it impossible for control to holographically infect them. Uh, Going to swoop in here and go on a two-episode mission with Discovery to eliminate the threat. And I'm glad that you mentioned that that line about uh, Pike not liking the holographic emitters because it really has circled back, of course, in the last couple episodes with the threat that those holographic displays uh, can 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 contain so i'm certainly eager for what's ahead certainly matt saru an underplayed presence in this episode but i'm now more convinced than ever he will be the next captain of the discovery i think that that is a logical outcome for this season the biggest knock against him was that fear component i think that objectively even in the the wise, uh, the, the wise future of Starfleet. You know, I think he was not Captain Material. Now he likely is. This also is another outing of him being acting captain, albeit you know short term. I suppose you know somebody is always acting captain when the captain leaves the ship. But um, it's something that would make sense, and particularly given his rank and given Burnham's, you know lower rank and less time up the old chain of command um and that minor blot on her record which i know has been expunged but you know time served etc cetera, etc cetera, he's a more likely candidate to be captain at the end of this season the captain for next season you can have some fun um some fun playful conflict there between captain and gee whiz who could possibly be you know second in command and that does seem to be where things are headed. The only problem I think it creates for the writer's room is would there be a situation where if we're going to eventually wind up with Burnham in the chair, as I think we all suspect at some point in this series, probably towards the, the middle three quarter mark as the captain, then what do you do with Saru? If you've uh, promoted him to captain, does he get his own command does he, you know, we, we do not want to lose Doug Jones on this show. Um, so, you know, maybe we enter to a similar situation, much like with the Shenzhou or with Enterprise this season, where there is a multi-tiered starship type of structure once we get to that point. Um, you're not going to bust him back to first officer and have Burnham. Uh, take command although maybe in the hands of a more efficient writer you could do that well i think of shazad latif and how at the end of last season it was like oh man hate to see the guy leave the show but i guess we've run out of story sorry it was pretty cool that you were secretly uh secretly a klingon and then you played the human guy and whatnot but hey the you know the jig is up. There's no more story for you. And then to have him in this season, again, with kind of the, to my mind, somewhat nebulous nature of you're a full member of the cast, but you're not credited in every episode. I don't know what that means in terms of resume or pay or whatever, but clearly he's an important part of the show. And the fact that they were able to loop him back in as secret agent, not on the ship, then on the ship, and now an important part of the crew that people don't really sneer at much anymore because they're far too busy worried about you know, the alien robots. Similarly, you know, if it was Admiral Saru who, you know, has to park it on the ship for the next, you know, for for the length of this mission, wink, wink, the season, 
I think you could ably have him be around in a in a future season where Byrne was captain. So much discussion online, Matt, with control, with the AI, that we might be looking at the origin of the Borg. I know we touched on it a little bit in our previous podcast, but there are people who are convinced now, given the nanobots green hue in the stabby thing in this episode, they've gone back as as some fans will and, and looked at statements made you know um leland as control says struggle is pointless sounds a little bit like an early branding of resistance is futile what say you well you reminded me and reminded our listeners last week that there were borg in star trek enterprise they had crash landed uh in the the icy realms of earth so I mean, you have to resolve those too. And and Pete, I have seen that Enterprise episode. I must confess, I don't remember it perfectly. That was kind of just the classic Borg. You know, like they took the suits that they already had for Star Trek productions and it was the same black suits with rubber hoses and, you know, robot arms, right? But, but Matt, you had the next gen early Borg and then you created for the silver screen updated Borg, and then you, in an earlier timeline, used those Borg from a movie, and now my action figures look different, and I need to sit down. Pete, I'm reminded of of somebody who we've hung out with a little bit at New York Comic Con, who is angry at Star Wars because that person's lengthy writings on The Last Jedi in anticipation were wrong. Therefore, uh, the the source material must be wrong because the theory was so good. Same thing here. I think you could, uh, you know, you can't get around the fact that Borg appear in Star Trek earlier than this. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, I know there's the crazy theory that this actually isn't real Star Trek or whatever, that we're not even going to go down. Could you... However, Pete, could you split the baby in terms of this is an attempt? Not We're not Not splitting Tenevik. (laughs) Indeed, Pete, we have seen, we've seen a version of that earlier this season in a a more literal sense. Split the prosthetic baby. Let's let's be very clear. Okay. (laughs) Solomon. Um, But, you know, uh, metaphorically, can you find a middle ground? How about that? Where this is revealed to be an attempt by the Borg to go in a nanite direction and then, oh, the nanites don't work. Let's stick to more of the traditional metal on skin type thing. Maybe. I also think too, I think of, you could have a situation in the writer's room where they are constantly afraid to go in any direction because it might sound vaguely like a thing that already existed. Therefore, you never get anything. Therefore, you just get, it's another day where the warp core doesn't work because if we go in this direction and there's aliens that are blue, are they Bolians? Are they Andorians? Oh no, we can't have blue aliens. So nothing blue must ever appear. Like there's a certain point where if you want to do robot bad guys, do robot bad guys don't be hewed in by they might look like the borg right you know and if if they're not planning on doing the borg prequel sequel then so be it maybe it's just me as a writer matt i really trust these writers and they haven't betrayed me um i understand if other people feel like you know oh i don't like this what have you you know you are completely entitled to your opinion Um, but I don't feel this writing staff has ever betrayed us or betrayed Star Trek in the two seasons. And if they want to somehow retcon this to be the origin of the Borg that then gets sent backwards in time and develops even further, much like we're talking about sending the sphere data well into the future and out of its reach, then that'll work for me. If this just winds up being a self-contained storyline about, you know, Star Trek's version of Skynet, I'm fine with that, too. I can have my Star Trek always. As a side note, here's what I don't get. I don't get how there are people who watch Discovery each week and hate it. Like, at a certain point, if it's that, 
If you don't like it, don't watch it. Like, and it's a thing that you pay for. It's not even like, oh, well, I'm home Saturday nights. It's on, it's on channel 11, you know, as was the case with next generation back in the day in our area. You're, you're paying for this thing. If you don't like it, don't, don't watch it. I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, we're not going to, we're going to try to bring reason where there is none, Matt. And it, Pete, they have anger. Let's move to logic. Any other theories on your space radar? Couple quick hits. The section 31 ship. First time we've really gotten detailed. I mean, I'm talking to the to the engineering guy over there. Um, we've gotten detailed looks. So they have the classic nacelles, which we saw when they decloaked, kind of like full down, cool. But their bridge is kind of like this, or or the main section is kind of like this dagger, almost like they they cut off the saucer section of the ship. Are you talking internally or externally? Externally. I'm not crazy about the design of it as a ship. I think there's I think that for the ships on this show, there's a little bit of a there's a community oneness. Because I know it's not just one person. I don't say, oh, it's John Eves who's had a hand in stuff, who has for many years. But I don't love the designs of ships in general. You know, I I think the discovery the discovery footprint or the discovery top view side view is not particularly attractive. I think it's been made to really shine in, you know, interesting angles because you can swirl around them with computer effects and it's not that you're limited to a physical model and how you have to orient it and make sure it doesn't tip over and have a camera and whatnot. So I, yeah, the design of discovery makes sense for what the show is. I don't necessarily love how the 31 ship looks. I think it lacks Elegance, if you're looking for elegance, I think it lacks kind of a sinister shape if you're going for that. But just a matter of personal preference. It's not It's not making my walls tumble on down. A fleet of nearly um, 30 ships is approaching Discovery, Matt. Um, it's almost all of the 31 fleet. As you joked before, uh, and I think effectively, what do they have? 31 i think we know who's on the one ship that might not be in that fleet oh yes captain Giorgio, or or the former captain Giorgio, or the future captain Giorgio. it's all very timey-wimey in this timey-wimey episode um i was surprised to hear that there's that many ships in section 31 maybe i'm coming from this classic trek thing that i think we all can agree has has been abandoned and should be abandoned that there's like only 12 starships. I think that that led to an urgency in the original series that made sense. It also led to, you know, a lack of needing to come up with a whole bunch of other ships because, look, it's our sister ship, NCC 7017, <laughs> because we moved the stickers around, you see. Um, I think, too, in the middle of the space race, the idea of people you know, wrapping their brains around hundreds of starships would have been too big a jump, you know, to make it like, all right, there are a dozen. Wow. We're eventually going to reach a point like we did in the seventies where there would be that many Voyager or Explorer or whatever the, the, the NASA class, uh, you know, satellites and, and vehicles were. Yeah, I suspect Gene Roddenberry was probably was probably considering the Enterprise to be akin to an aircraft carrier, of which there are eleven that the United States has now. So that's probably there, there's your analogy. Versus, you know, like battleships or destroyers or whatever, of which I'm sure there's many, many more in in our navy and you know, in the navies of the world, etc. So. If nothing else, Pete, the fact that there's 30 ships coming to attack the one, that is a convincing reason to destroy, wink, the Discovery, as opposed to it's one ship, or we can fight off five, or ten to one. Maybe we'll go down fighting with those odds. 30 to one is such an overwhelming number that you can say, yes, the only way out of this is to destroy the ship and the sphere data contained therein. The... Uh, control infected Gantt or reconstructed Gantt, I think we should say properly because that's what it wanted to do to Burnham. 
mentions the threat assessment program was attempting to prevent the Klingon war from ever happening. That's pretty interesting given that it would provide some canonical fix, if you will, Matt, for why we never heard about that war before. We could, in essence, at the end of the season and that thread followed through, not just expunge from the record of Burnham, expunge from all of time, that event. It's funny. I know back in the in those early days, Pete, if you can remember back when Brian Fuller was a showrunner, if you know, it's so many showrunners ago, um, the notion that there was there had been canonical reference to this fight or this war or the this conflict. Um which I remember like looking up on Memory Alpha and being like, oh, okay, yeah, that's cool. So you're finding this little this little area to open up. Lately, as I flip through my Star Trek chronology second edition, it does not mention that in there, which is to say it's so minor a thing. It was so minor a thing in the late 90s that it did not warrant mentioning in this book that they had done a second edition on and added glossy color pictures and etc and buy what you already bought buy it again but now more uh more room more this more that it, it was such a minor thing that it did not merit worth mentioning so do we do a time thing that erases where we have been maybe i just wonder again what's from a production point of view what's the discussion in terms of how are people going to react if we undo all of this and is that going right. to Feed the trolls. Do we care at this point? Do we care about trolls versus whatever? As long as people are, people who presumably are paying for the subscription are enjoying the show. Or, and if you're going to hate watch or if you're going to pay for it, fine. That is a measure of a show's health. Do they undo what we've done? I, I don't know. Last one from me, Matt. How long until someone names their baby Tanavik? Um... I'm going to say that we find out over the summer that there is a child with the middle name, a child who has been given the middle name Tanavik, um, and uh, much ado is made about it at STLV. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Let us start, as we always do, with our Twitter poll. Uh, people having a chance to rate this episode. Uh, four stars, X. Oh, outstanding. Three stars, scary future. Two stars, Bora thing. Like boring. And then one star, hangnail says I. Uh, 4% gave it one star. 8% two stars. 8% three stars. And a very robust 80% gave it four stars. I think it was their second best episode of the season. The first one being the, uh, the other Klingon-centric story. I think they're really linked in that. And I think Discovery does its... Klingon intrigue as well as possible. We have some tweets here. The first from Karen Chu. That's Karen Chu on Twitter. Captain of my heart. People always talk about ranking series, and I have a hard time and have to hold TOS in a special spot that cannot even be ranked. Well, I have put Discovery right next to it. It's just its own thing, and this season Pike has made it as good as TOS. I mean, Anson Mount's just done such a tremendous job, and he's now cemented in history. We've we've seen how the injury happens, so we have our three pikes to uh, to line up there, Matt. Hopefully, it doesn't wind up like Walking Dead with heads on pikes. There are three pikes. Um, another tweet. This one from Tom Lande. That's at Tom Lande on Twitter. Uh, only thing harder than waiting for next week is knowing that I'm going to have to wait another week after that for the conclusion. Maybe we can snap forward in time and watch them both. <laughs> uh, tweet here from C. William Perkins, who, like the other two tweeters, has a, uh, a Twitter name that is the same as their given name. Uh, Takeaway from the cliffhanger, admittedly awesome. And it was a slow episode with too much filler, diluting a short trek's worth of excellent Pike development clearly table setting for the more interesting climax. I was completely engrossed in this episode, so I'm going to agree to disagree a little bit. Um, but when you consider that what I thought was a great episode and, and what this uh, tweeter thinks is, is set up, we're going to get more payoff 
in the next two episodes. Last two tweets from JT Atkins. That's at JTA is me. First of all, this is one roller coaster that needs to never stop. Secondly, allow me to crazy theorize. We are going to end up in a non-prime timeline, and that's fine. Is next season Discovery aboard the Enterprise? There are always possibilities. And he adds the two statements. When the future becomes the past, the present will be unlocked. And not every cage is a prison, not every loss eternal. These are the these are key to the ending of season two. Now, if I just knew what it means. <laughs> Listen, we all want to see these last two episodes. There's so much speculation and can't wait to chew it all over with you. Pete, are you ready to hear from Fred in the Netherlands? New microphone and all. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 12. I'm recording with my new construction of my microphone, which is hanging now freely and will probably give less disturbance and a better sound. It was a good episode, although I'm always looking very much forward to all kinds of visual effects, and that was a little less in this episode, I think. Normally I take screenshots of the episode and that was also much less than usual. One very nice thing was that when we see Saru and we then go to Borat, that his face changed into the rock face of the rock formation on Borat. It was only very short, but that was a very nice visual effect. One nitpick is that I thought about the spore drive. Why don't they use it? They just jumped to Boris, and even Reno was referring to that during their lunch. So nothing that's hindering them to use the spore drive. So why didn't they use that opportunity? Another thing is that I didn't see it coming that Gant was the new AI, so the new Leland, the new control. I really wonder if on these 30, Section 31 ships, if they're all controlled just by the AI, or is there still a normal crew there? Or is there a normal crew there under power of just one person who is invaded by the AI? Or is still Georgiou behind that? I have a big, big feeling, but I'm probably not the only one. This, this whole story will result in the short track story of Calypso. So instead of sending just the suit with all the sphere data to the future, sending discovery with the sphere data to the future. And I think this could eventually result in a USS Discovery 1031A with a new captain. And as probably everybody, I'm very much looking forward to see the Enterprise again. And hopefully we see a little more than in the pilot. And I hope to see Rebecca Romaine as number one back. Nice reference to the menagerie, by the way, with Pike in that wheelchair. Seeing Klingons back here, I liked the son of Tyler and, or actually Fogue and Laurel. Tanavik. But when I see these Klingons here with all their prosthetics and the way they talk, no, sorry, Mary Chifo, you do a wonderful job of playing Laurel, but it's still, well, I have problems with these Star Trek Discovery Klingons. And it got a little better, of course, since season one. The time setting on Boreth is of course a little strange that Tanavik is already an adult man, although his parents brought him there just a few months ago. So I really wonder what will happen if they're ever going to visit him in the next half year, if he's an old and grey Klingon, or even already dead by old age. But you never know what these crystals do, and perhaps he is a young guy again. Some fans will be probably happy finally getting Reno back, although she is playing here a kind of relation therapist, talking to Culber and talking to Stamet. She lost her partner, that she said, come on guys, take your chances. But nevertheless, a little strange. It was nice to see how they get lunch together, very colorful scene. Although I didn't get the joke with Linus there. Perhaps you can explain it to me. Okay. 
That was all for now. Greetings, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, first thing off the bat here, I'm glad Fred mentioned that really wonderful transition from Saru's face to the rock face. Yeah, it was really cool to see how they digitally integrated that. Regarding the spore drive jump to Boreth, Matt, and the non-use of it at the end of the episode, all the answers are there, that the Section 31 ships would just continue to target them, and they don't have what they need. They don't have the knowledge to use the time crystal to access those final three signals yet, hence the need to destroy Discovery, which leads into the idea that um, Fred talks about the potential for us to wind up with the AI Discovery in the future from the Short Trek. I like, too, Fred's question that are these incoming Section 31 ships, are they all crewed by AI? Are they crewed by, you know, independent, free-thinking people? Are they all under Giorgio's command? Is she coming to save the day with her Section 31 fleet? Will there be 30 um, control agent Georgios, Matt? Could we get, could we get that? That is like a fever dream fantasy that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> it's uh, like the uh, the episode from the next gen where all the enterprises are are popping up from the different timelines and then one of my favorites the the one Riker from the Borg controlled timeline who can't even get away from the bridge long enough to shave has this this long beard he's like you can't send us back he's he's attacking the uh, the main enterprise, which is trying to to heal time. Uh, Fred also puts forth a really great theory. Do we get on Star Trek Discovery the destruction of the Starship Discovery and the potential for next season to do something very Star Trekian to replace it with the 1031-A, another crossfield ship, which happens to look exactly like the original one, which we've seen before on Star Trek. I mean, nothing's ever out of the realm of possibility on this show, but I, I just don't know if we'd go in that direction. We'll, we'll see. I mean, it would certainly establish a firm link to the Calypso short. Oh, no. Actors can't say runabout Yangtze Kian. Let's destroy it and replace it with something easier to say <laughs> and use the same model and the same set. Problem solved. Uh, Pete, lastly, can you please explain the Linus joke? Yes, the auto antonym. I don't know if it's translating into Dutch, though. I wonder if that's not a thing. So that Linus and uh, Detmer and Awushikun and um, Reno are playing this game where you say a word that also means the opposite of what it sounds like. So oversight or sanction or anything like that um maybe it's getting lost in translation pete i'm glad you didn't choke on that and of course pete any conversation that you have on twitter you don't choke on that either so how can people be in touch with you you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r j ketelar k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 10,396 followers can't be wrong and while i'm personally on twitter as looking back lost do be in touch with the podcast comment on fantasticgeek.com check us out on twitter on instagram on gmail where we are fantastic geek as well but wait Pete, there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek all one word with the p with the h with you today well pete if you're listening on the pop culture podcast feed it's a quiet week we have this then we have cloak and dagger tomorrow then we have shazam uh, within a day of that uh then of course we will be back for star trek discovery next week in i, I can't believe it pete there's only two episodes to go uh, it has gone by so fast it has been so wonderful so regardless of when we next talk to our dear listeners whether it's for cloak and dagger for shazam for star trek for godfriend and me in two weeks whatever it is I look forward to the discussion, and with that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Beep. Beep.